here physically. So glad that you're here tonight, and those of you that are that are watching online. Um, I want to let you know that uh, next week, um, which is the seventh, I want to make sure now because I've been known sometimes to make commitments that are not that are not right. Uh, yes, next week, um, Rob and Mary Grinley will be here, and they're going to do a healing service. Two weeks. Past. We did a series on hmm? two weeks. That's what I said, two weeks. Okay. Did you say one week? Oh, you did. I did. <laughs> That's what I said, two weeks. You just didn't hear it right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Ray. Uh, two weeks. It, that's right. Two weeks from tonight, we're going to have a healing service. Rob and Mary Grinley, uh, who were here a few weeks ago, actually uh, the beginning of September um, of this month, uh, had just come from a series of meetings in Michigan. And they have felt the Spirit of God moving on them to do healing services. And they saw some dramatic, instant miracles take place. And I've believed for a while that God is about to do something like that here. We did a healing series earlier this year. And I never felt quite a release to actually pray for people here. And this may be the opportunity to do that. So I just want to make you, those of you that are watching online, uh, if, if you are in need of healing, I encourage you to be here. If you have somebody that you know that's in need of healing, uh, God wants to show up because that is part of the gospel as we learned together before. So, just want to remind you of that. And uh, let's get into God's Word tonight. Uh, we're tonight going to bring this study, I uh, believe, to a head. Uh, we've been studying uh, Hebrews 11. Let's put that up. Hebrews 11.6 is our foundation scripture. It says, without faith it's impossible to please Him. That's God. For he who comes to God, so I really believe that, that so many Christians think that faith is kind of a, it, it's either sort of a, an optional thing to, to learn or grow in, or it's that weird faith movement that this church was founded out of, by the way, and this for some extremists. But the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So first of all, it's important that we grow in our faith because without that, we cannot please God. And whoever loves God wants to please Him. And He tells us why. Because he who comes to God must believe, that's the exercise of our faith, that He is, and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So then we've been looking at Romans chapter 4. If you put that verse up, actually, uh, the next verse, we're going to skip down through some of that. This is it. And he's the father of the circumcision, I mean Abraham, to those who not only are of the circumcision, that's the Jews, but also who walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was yet still uncircumcised. So Paul is there, we've talked about this a number of times before. Paul is the whole first half of the book of Romans is the best possible uh, uh, explanation or statement of the doctrine that Martin Luther uncovered in the Bible is that we're saved by faith in what God did for us through Christ. And that's what the first three chapters are establishing. Chapter 4 teaches us what that faith is, what faith is. And this is really the beginning of that discussion. And he's referring back to, and this is the title of the series, is the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while he was still 
uncircumcised. So we've been going back into Genesis and following the steps. Steps refer to Abraham's growth in his faith, where God started with him, the mistakes that he made, how God helped him through those mistakes, and then where he ended up in faith, and that's what we're going to look at, look at tonight. So very quickly to review, we see that God called Abraham. So we're going to learn something about how we grow in faith by how God worked to help Abraham grow in faith. So it began in Genesis 12 where God calls Abraham, still his name is Abram at the time, to leave his home country, which is a pagan society, and to go out somewhere and not tell him where it is, but told him, I'll tell you when you get there. So the beginning of this growth of faith is a step of faith just to leave the comfort and security of where he is. And many of us have done that. Now, in my case, I left a job, but I also left family because it, many of you, it caused you to break relationships with families. People wonder why you've left the church and come to a place like this. So it's, it, we step out of where we were not knowing where God's going to take us. It's a journey. And then we saw that he didn't just grow every, every day, every week, every month straight up, that he had times where he struggled with it. We saw those, and we're not going to go back over that. And each time he did, God came to him and gave him some greater step to help him grow in his faith. And it began in Genesis 15, where God introduces him to the blood covenant that God wants to enter into him with that. And then we saw where he slipped after that. And then in Genesis 17, God renews this covenant with further outward steps of what that means to enter the covenant. The ultimate step was the rite of circumcision, which was the physical mark of that covenant. And that's what uh, Paul is referring to in Romans 4. While he was still uncircumcised, before God had entered into this covenant with him, Abraham was operating, beginning to operate in, in faith. And then what was in Genesis 17... And then we saw last time in Genesis 18 where God comes and he's about to go and bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah through these angels and how Abraham negotiates with him. We saw how, how Abraham, because nothing happened for a while. Abraham was 75 when God first appeared to him. And then by the time he's about 86, then he's, nothing's happened. God spoke to him one more time, but nothing's happened. So in 11 years, you can get discouraged if you don't see some sign of it. And remember what the basic problem is this. The challenge is this. God has told him that through you and your wife, Sarah, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he takes him out and shows him the stars in the sky and says your descendants will ultimately be more numerous than those stars. But the basic problem is Abraham and Sarah have no children. She's been barren their whole marriage and they're now both past childbearing age. So what God is saying is, I'm going to take an impossible situation, what's impossible in human, human strength, possible in science and nature and in, in medicine, what is biologically impossible, and I'm going to bring life out of that simply because you believed me. And because nothing was happened, we saw Abraham and his wife do what we're so tempted to do when we don't see anything happening. They decided to help God out to accomplish his goal, so they picked the goal that God gave them, which was that Abraham would have a son, but since Sarah was barren, he had her, he had, she had him 
have real physical relations with her servant, and she bore a son to him. They presented that son to God, and God said, no, I'm not going to do it through something you've done to help me. I'm going to do it. Your only part is to believe my promise. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So when they brought Ishmael to God to say, we've helped you, we see your goal, and we're helping you along that line, that did not please God because it was not done in faith. And in the New Testament, we have this proposition that whatever is not of faith is sin because it's not ultimately trusting in God. So that's kind of what we have looked at. And then that chapter ended by these angels, again, this time getting specific and saying, at this time next year, after the time of a woman, which is the nine months of gestation, Sarah will bring forth a son. So we're going to pick up now with that. We're going to go to Genesis 22, because we're going to, and I'll only tell you what's happened in the meantime. First of all, God sends those angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin was so wretched. But he rescues, he sends the angels to rescue Lot. Then Abraham travels south to Gerar, and now he goes through the same thing with Abimelech, which he's done twice before, which he goes into this, this, this territory, and he tells Sarah's wife, if the king sets his eyes on you, tell him you're my sister, not my wife. And as I read further in there, we're not going to take the time tonight, this is something he had told her in the beginning. Now imagine, ladies, having your husband tell you, look, if somebody sets their eyes on you, just tell me you're my sister, not my wife. And that shows you that he's still not fully trusting God. And yet God delivers him again. And then Isaac is finally born. And Sarah laughs and says, should a, a child is now given, God has given me laughter that I should nurse a child in my age. She's 90 years old. And she bears this son, and the angel told them to name this son Isaac. And then God renews again the promise. We're going to see that again tonight. Every time God does something with Abraham to encourage him in his faith, God renews again the promise that he made to him way back in Genesis chapter 12. So God's still working with him. And now where we pick up, Isaac has been born. Finally, the manifestation of what God required them to believe him for. Because again, they didn't just believe God and then this son shows up. It's a struggle. They've gone through a battle to grow in faith. They've tried to help God out, presented Ishmael, and God says, no, there's only one way this is going to happen. It's going to happen because you believe me and my promise, and then I fulfill that promise. And it's taken 25 years years. And now this son of the promise is born. And he is the, he is the apple of Abraham's eye. Imagine having, you know, just to have a child, you love that child. But what they've gone through to believe God and the struggle they've gone through. And now here is this son. And the son begins to grow up and mature. We don't know exactly what age he is when this story picks up. But we're going to see tonight the ultimate test that God gives to Abraham, and we're going to see why and then learn how to apply this 
to our lives, to our lives. All right, here we go. Genesis 22. Now it came to pass after these things. What I just described to you was these things that it came to pass after. God tested Abraham. Let's stop there a second. The Bible tells us in James chapter 1 and by just God's character, God will never tempt you with evil because that's tempting you to sin. But God will test you. God will test you not so that he'll find out where you are because God knows where you are, but he'll test you so that you'll find out where you are and he's giving you the challenge and the opportunity to rise to the occasion. There's a philosophy out there among some schools. I was talking to a, a, a minister today, and he's involved in a school, a, 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 a Bible school, where they don't have tests. And there's some schools, I think one of our granddaughters goes to a school where there's no tests. Well, human nature is if we're not tested, we'll just get by. But a test forces you to pull out of you something, to drive into it and to, into, and to bear in. My first year of law school, and I don't think they do this anymore, and they certainly shouldn't, but with one exception, my courses were a whole year course. And there were no tests until the final exam. So you went into the final exam after nine months of study and tests, not tests, nine months of study and classroom participation and all that, having no idea where you stood until the last test, the only test, and it was all or nothing. And it was, an, it was a scary place to be, to have no idea where I was. I thought I was in good shape, and obviously I made it, but I didn't know that because it was never tested, brought out in me to find out where I really was. A test also challenges you to step up a little higher, to reach out for something, and God knows just how to do that. So God's not testing him here to take something from him. God's not testing him here because God's got to find out for himself where he is. God's challenging Abraham to have an opportunity to grow to another level of faith. And by the time we're finished tonight, we're going to see how critical that was for you and me, even though Abraham lived 3, 000, about 3,000 years ago. So let's get on with this testing that he gives to Abraham. Because if you just read down this story, it can sound scary. Why would God do this? It's confusing. Why would God... Well, we're going to see what it is in just a minute. Most of you know already. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, those words in Hebrew are not, here I am, it really is a surrendering. Those words in Hebrew imply, I'm opening up, I am available to you. Whatever you want to say to me or do, here I am. So God says, says uh, come, uh, uh, he said to him, Abraham, he says, here I am, verse 2. And then he said, now just look, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Notice he's not recognizing Ishmael. Because for what God's about to do, Ishmael is irrelevant. 
God has other plans for Ishmael, but not when it comes to God's plan for redemption of mankind. Your only son Isaac, whom you love. That's an important component of this test. Because God's not going to ask him to do something with some slave or a donkey or a bull or some animal. It's the most precious part of Abraham's life. He has desired a son. We see that in the very beginning because when God comes to Abraham and offers himself in this covenant, remember Abraham's first reaction, it's in Genesis 15, is what will you give me seeing that I don't have an heir of my own body? But this servant, Eleazar, is my heir until, unless I ever have my own. So his love is, this is not just his, the child of his old age, this is his future, this is, his, this is the love of his life. Not only that, in this son is all the fulfillment of the promises God has made to him. So it's far beyond just this son. It's that he will be a father of many nations. And God has made it clear that it's only through Isaac. It's not through some other plan. It's only through Isaac. And I'm, I'm emphasizing, you know, building this up so you can get the full impact of what God's about to say to him. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. There it is, God's again saying, I will tell you when they get there. Offer him as a burnt offering. And it was, Abraham knew exactly what that meant. That meant that they were to pile up wood. They would take an animal for a burnt offering and they would pile up wood for a fire. They would tie the animal up and tie him on top of it and then they would literally slit its throat and then they would set it on fire and offer that life up to God through the smoke. And he's telling him to do this with this son he required him to believe him for. Verse 3. Now, let's just stop a second. We don't, we're not told Abraham's thought processes here. We will be a little later on. It just starts out, and Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Now, just put yourself in Abraham's place. God said to you, I am making you a father of many nations. And it's going to be through a child that you and your wife Sarah will bear. It's not going to be through Ishmael. It's only going to be this way, and it's only this son, Isaac. And now that son is here. That promise looks like it's being fulfilled. And God says to him, I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. I want you to kill the child of the promise. Can you see some inconsistency here? Can you see that these two words of God don't exactly line up? They seem like they conflict. It's like two, two roads that you look at and you, you can see that you go very far down this and they're going to collide. There's going to be a crash coming. They're inconsistent. So here's what we do. 
We get God's first promise, we take the second thing we hear, and we've got to decide one of these wasn't God. One of these was either the pizza I ate last night, or it's the devil. And since it's the last one is taking away what I know God promised me, I'm going to rebuke the devil. That has to be the devil, because it doesn't line up with what God told me. Isn't that what we do? I mean, we're sharp enough to realize... These two things are not, they don't jive together. How can this son, everything God's told, in fact, I didn't quite believe him and God made me see it's this son and now God's telling me to kill him. So what we tend to do is we take what God says and we try to figure out what it's going to mean. Remember the story in the garden? What got them in trouble? Satan comes to them. God gave them clear instructions, or Adam at least. He said, here's this garden, I give it to you. You may freely eat of anything in this garden. Enjoy it. There's two trees in the middle. There's a tree of life, eternal life, and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. That's it. Don't eat of it. No explanation. No why. No commentary as to what God might have meant. Don't eat the fruit of the tree. In Romans 5, when it's talking about their sin, Paul talks later on about, about um, how, how the woman was deceived by Satan. But when it refers to Adam in, in, in Romans 5, it talks, refers to a sin after the similitude or the example of Adam's sin. The difference between what Adam did and what Eve did, she was deceived. Adam violated a known, clear commandment. He just chose to do something else. And remember what Satan's temptation was to get them to violate God's commandment? It was to reason about what's good and evil. To take into their own hands the knowledge of what's good and evil. So what Satan tempted them to do was to take God's clear commandment and try to figure out why God said it. Because what Satan said is, oh, God's told you that because he's got some ulterior motive. He's trying to keep something from you. So the temptation was to get them to reason in their own reasoning about God's clear commandment. So here's that kind of case. Here's that opportunity. Here's that same test. God's commanded him one thing, and now God gives him a commandment that in human understandings, all rational, normal, clear thinking tells you these two things collide, and you can't, you're going to cancel one of these out. So the temptation would be to take into our own hands, what do we do about that? Do we just rebuke one of them? Do we slow down until we see how this is going to work out? But notice Abraham rose early in the morning. So there's no delay here. We don't know Abraham's thinking. We will see it a little later on. And he took his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and he rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place far off. Keep going. 
And Abraham said to his young men, look at this carefully, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder, so we can tell he was southern, and worship, and we will come back to you. Somewhere, Abraham is believing, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm not letting go of that promise God's taught me to believe him for. I don't understand what this means. I'm just not letting go of that promise. And here we see he's already seen the promise begin to manifest because he has the son. But that's not the full promise. It's through this son you will be the father of many nations and through this son the world will be blessed. We'll talk about that at the end. So the lad and I will go yonder over there and we're going to worship. Notice this is a form of worship. Obedience to God is a form of worship. Worship isn't just singing slow songs in church on Sunday morning. Worship is an attitude of your heart acknowledging who God is in the universe and who God is in your life. And we will come back. So Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac. So we know Isaac's old enough to carry the wood. Now, just We'll go back here in a minute. On his son Isaac. And he took the fire in his hands and the knife and the two of them went on together. We don't know what's going on in Abraham at this point. We don't know how he's grieving. We don't know what's going on in his mind. But there's an act of faith here that God is drawing out of him. Verse 7. Now Isaac's smart enough to do an inventory. Because he's seen bird offerings before. And he's doing this inventory. And he said, Father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, I see the fire. Check. I see the wood. Check. But I don't see the lamb that's going to be for the burnt offering. Something's missing here. Look what Abraham says. Next verse. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself. Literally, this says God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And so the two of them went on together. And they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there. Now, this is a story, excuse me, about Abraham's faith. But I've often thought about the faith of Isaac. Think of the faith of Isaac he has in his father's word. So there must have been something steady in Abraham. The son says, I see the fire and I see the wood, but I don't see the lamb. In some translations, it's the goat. I don't see the animal. And Abraham, his father, says, God will provide what we need. And so they came to the place and Abraham built an altar and placed the wood in order. And now this is a great step of faith for Isaac. And he bound his son and laid him on the altar, on the wood. There's a verse we read last week of why God's in Genesis 18, of why God chose Abraham. Because he said he knew he would train his children to follow after God. 
And here's evidence of the trust that his son has in him. Laid him on the wood upon the, upon the wood. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, fully intending to slay his son. Keep going. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad nor do anything, for now on I know that you fear the Lord since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now let's stop there and look at this a second. So God is stopping him. Now remember we've learned before, in, 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 uh, uh, it's a number of places, but the most famous scriptures are in James, which is faith without works, effort, physical effort, is dead. In other words, faith does not really become, the power of faith does not become energized until you act on what you believe. Believing is a passive thing. It's something you do with inside of you. But faith acts outwardly on what you believe. And there are many examples of it. The best, other than here, is the example in Matthew 14, when Jesus, the disciples in the storm, we've talked about many times, going in the boat to the other side that Jesus told them to do, and there's a storm comes up, and they see Jesus walking into the water, and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. And Jesus gives the command, come, and Peter Peter's must believe he can come or he wouldn't have asked for it, but he, the power for him to, in his faith is not released until Peter acts on the word come and steps out of the boat. And that's when the power is energized. The moment Peter stops looking at the word come and trusting in the word come and starts looking at the circumstances around him, that power begins to wane and he begins to sink. I don't know how you begin to sink, but he began to sink. So this is an example. This is what God is doing with him here. See, because there's more at stake in the promise of Isaac than just that Abraham's going to have a son that's going to go up, grow up and take over the family business. Because God's promise to Abraham was not just that he would have a son, but through that son, the nations of the world would be blessed. And so the, 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 the step that God needs to bring him to is the ultimate step of trust. Because the son was now the physical, tangible evidence of the promise. Remember what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In Romans chapter 8, it says that when you finally see something, you no longer need to hope for it, because you don't have to hope for something that you actually can touch. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So up until Isaac is born, Abraham's faith was in something he didn't see until he saw his wife pregnant and then eventually saw this little boy born. Now Abraham does not have to operate in faith because he can see the son. He doesn't have to believe God for the son because he can now see that boy. So now his faith now shifts to the physical boy he can see and no longer is directly in God's promise. This is kind of like when you're believing God for a healing and you've been praying and you're trusting God and now the symptoms start going away. 
or you get a, a favorable report from the doctor, and now you begin to put your trust in. I've had to warn people over and over, oh, pastor, it's great. A doctor gave me a good report. My test results are much better. I'm going the right direction. I said, be careful. Don't shift your faith from God's word to those test results because they could turn around again. You've now moved your faith away from God's word and into this natural realm. And remember who's the God of this natural realm? It's Satan. He can manipulate those results once you put your trust in them. That's what happened to Peter out on the water. And that's what God is making sure doesn't happen with Abraham. So what God is saying is, I want the physical evidence that you now have that this promise is coming about, I want you to give it back to me. Now, God will do that in our lives in different ways. I've had God do that to me. Not with a child, but with other gifts that God gives you. God may have given you a talent or an ability. When I was first in the ministry... I knew early on that God had given me a, a gift for teaching. And because I was insecure at that point, I began to put my identity in the gift. And that's a dangerous thing for a minister to do. Because then you start, your motive is the gift and the feedback you're getting for the use of the gift and not the God that's given that gift to you. God does not give you gifts for your benefit. He gives you gifts to benefit others. So if people come to me and say, Pastor, well, boy, you, you, that was such a, you, you, that's, you're such a great teacher. I said, what this is is a gift God's given me so you can see him more clearly through his word. I didn't create the gift. I didn't earn the gift. I'm just responsible for how I operate it. Maybe God's given you other gifts or talents. Maybe it's a musical ability. Maybe it's a creative ability to write things. And God will test that at times. Why? For your sake, for your benefit. So God had me put that gift down for about four years. I had to submit it back to him, let it go. And say, God, if I never stand in a pulpit and teach again, it's what if I, doing your will, that's all I care about doing. And then God gave that opportunity back to me and then ultimately trusted me with what he's put me responsible for here. So God will do that to us, not just Abraham, but he does it because God knows how to keep us safe from the things that Satan would destroy us with. Now I know that you fear God. That means reverence him, since you've withheld not your only son. So what this angel is saying is God is saying, now I know that I'm first in your life, more than your son. We have to be careful. Because we can make, we can be, we can have God first and then things he gives us begin to take his place in our life. There's a long list, Pastor Sam used to talk about, of people that came faithfully to church. They couldn't have children. They came and got prayed for, believed for a child. God gave them a child and you never saw them again. Or God gives you a job and that job now takes you out of church. And so they put the job first. They put the children first. They put things God's given them first before God, and he is a jealous God. I know that's in the Old, it's in the New Testament too. It's in James chapter 4. The Spirit of God is jealous over us. God wants to be first in our heart, because we're first in his heart. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, 
and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So I look at this. I see, we don't have the whole picture. This is why we trust God. So you've got Abraham and his son going up one side of the mountain. And Abraham is going to obey God and do what God says. He's not going to worry about how this is going to interfere with the promise. That's God's business. His business is to obey. Our only responsibility is to obey God's word and to obey the instructions he gives us. The results and how things work out are his responsibility as long as we have obeyed him. But while he's going up this side of the mountain, what he doesn't know and what Isaac don't know, doesn't know is on the other side, there's a ram also making its way up the mountain, having no idea the purpose that it's going to fulfill. Okay. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. That's what that comes from. It literally is the Lord will provide. As it is said today, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now let's go back and, and look at a couple of things here. No, let me go on. Verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself... <laughs> See, when you, Paul talks about when you swear an oath, you've got, uh, Hebrews does, when you swear an oath, you have to swear by somebody greater than yourself. So God looked around and says, well, I don't see anybody greater than myself, so I've got to swear by me. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, verse 17, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the sand, not sandwiches, sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. Stop there a second. That's the same thing he promised him back in Genesis 12. That's the same thing he promised him back in Genesis 15. That's the same thing he promised him back in Genesis 17. What is this? Does God just have to keep making the same promise? No. As Abraham grows in his, in his level of his faith, although they're the same words, God's level of commitment to that promise, it's hard to put into words. There's a marriage taking place here. I, I was seeing this this morning. Holy Spirit, help me to get this across. See, this faith is so critical because faith is trusting God, trusting ourselves to God. And as we do that, we enter into a more intimate living relationship with Him. And God is able to pass on to us things He can't pass on without that. It's not that He holds them back. We can't receive them. Wait, in James chapter 1, it says, it's a, it talks about, uh, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And then it starts out with wisdom, but then it talks about anything. He said, if, if you doubt, you're like, you're like a man in the, in the sea, the wind, in the, the wind blows the waves back and forth, and you're a double-minded land. Not let, you're a double-minded man. Let not that man think he shall receive anything from the Lord. It doesn't say the Lord won't provide it. It says you're unable to receive it because you're double-minded. You're not, your heart's not fully trusting the way, uh, way uh, uh, Peter was when he got out on the water, the way Abraham is here. And that heart 
of complete, open, childlike trust allows us to receive more of the fullness of what God has promised us. And so when God reiterates this promise, I can just, I can sense it inside. It's not that he's saying the same thing. It's with a deeper impact because Abraham is more open. His heart is more open. His trust is larger so he can receive this at a deeper, deeper level. I hope I'm getting across what's, what's in my heart. So God is reinforcing this promises that I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is in the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gates of your enemies. Go on to the next verse. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Now I used to believe because I read through this quickly, that this was a Abraham was willing to lose his son forever. But let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, because this is the Holy Spirit's looking back and telling us the story. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. That's what we see. But no, stay there a second. Go back. He who had received the promises. That's a significant phrase. He didn't just hear the promises. He didn't just believe the promises. He received them into his heart. He embraced the promises with his heart. Offered up his only begotten son. Verse 18. Why? of whom it is said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. We'll come back and look at that in a minute. Verse 19. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. So what drove Abraham on, here's this inconsistency in his mind. God said through this son Isaac, you will be the father of many nations and the worlds are going to be blessed through this son. And God's told him, sacrifice his life to him and all Abraham knows is I don't care if I got to sacrifice him I'm not letting go of that promise and if God has to raise him from the dead he's still going to do what he said he was going to do that's the place God wanted to bring him to that no matter what happened he was not going to let go of that promise even if God told him to do something that looked like it was going to destroy the possibility wow from which, look at this, he also received him in a figurative sense. Now let me tell you what's at stake here. Go back one verse, let me see. Yes. Of whom it is said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. The promise that God reiterated in Genesis 22, after Abraham did this, was your seed, in your seed the nations shall be blessed. That is singular. Paul quotes this in, Romans, in Galatians chapter 3, when he talks about the seed of Abraham, and he says not seeds, plural, but seed, and makes clear that seed is referring 
to Christ. And here's what this is about. Back when God entered into this covenant with him, this blood covenant in Genesis 15 and then renews it in Genesis 17, and there's some other things he did that we didn't get into. A blood covenant we talked about is when one party makes a full commitment of his life or their life to the other party, whether it's a family, whether it's a tribe, whether it's a, whether it's a whatever it may be. And the blood represents the giving, the pledging of their life. The essence of a blood covenant is it's a union. The two families, the two tribes, the two whatever they are, now become one, which means they, their possessions belong to each other, there's a mutual pledge to defend each other. Whatever the other needs, you have already pledged to give it to them. That's the background here. God entered into one of those with Abraham. And Abraham understood that because that culture back then understood blood covenants as the Eastern cultures still do. So what God has done here is God is saying, I, as your covenant partner, I'm requiring the life of your son. Now, are you going to give him to me or not? And Abraham is living up to his end of the blood covenant. He's literally giving his greatest possession to God, to whatever he wants to do with him. And here's what that means. That means God has now covenant-bound to give to Abraham his son if Abraham needs it. And of course, Abraham was a sinner like we were, and he needs the blood of that son so that his life can be redeemed. So God is now duty-bound to give his son because of what Abraham has done for him. Remember the scene. Abraham is climbing this mountain with his only begotten son, carrying on his back the wood that is going to be used to sacrifice his only son to God. And we know that several thousand years later, God's son climbs up. Oh, by the way, it's the same hill. This is the same hill that Christ was executed on. So on this same hill, several thousand years later, God's son carries the wood of his sacrifice up that hill. But on this hill, God doesn't raise his hand to stop it. But God fulfills the execution of his son because in that seed, the nations of the world will be blessed. This is what was at stake in Abraham's obedience. This is what was at stake when God worked with him to help develop him as he grew in steps of faith. And so our growing in our faith, our growing in our relationship with God, our growing in our trusting God is not just a matter of how blessed we can be or how peaceful we can be, but you and I have no idea what's at stake that God may want to do through our lives. At the men's meeting, 
um, Lafayette Skills told a story about a young person in his, it was a woman, I think, young girl in his church that was, that was, was shot on, 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 on the street by accident. Somebody driving by, oh, there was a party. It was a graduation party. And it was a, it was a swimming event. And while they're in there swimming clothes and they're having a great time, and, and she was, I think, the valedictorian of her class. She had a full scholarship to some major university. She was a writer. She was a poet. She was talented. And, and somebody drives by or fires a gun and the bullet goes right through her neck and kills her on the spot. And Lafayette's eulogy about her life was about how Cain slew Abel and what was in the ground. What was in the ground was not just the body of an 18-year-old girl. What was in the ground was books that weren't be written, poems that wouldn't be written, perhaps a doctor that would save lives, perhaps the scientist that would come up with a cure for cancer or something else. The potential of that life that was now snuffed out, the, 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 the person that pulled the trigger and nobody else would ever know. But your faith and my faith of what God wants to do through us. There's more at stake than whether we're peaceful, whether we're joyful, whether our bills are going to be paid. Because God has things for his people to do that are exceedingly abundant beyond all we can think or ask. We talked about this before. According to what? The power that works in us. God has put in us, put in you, put in me, just like the gifts God's given to me, God's put gifts in you, abilities, sensitivities. It may not be to preach. It may not be to write. It may just be a sensitivity. My wife has a special sensitivity to people. She can sense what, she can get into a conversation with somebody and find out things about them and make a connection with them. It, it, it dazzles me how fast she can do that. And we're all to do that, but she has a gift to do that, and she exercises that gift. And so God has put things in every one of us to affect the lives of other people, to influence them. But we have to learn to walk by faith. And God is working in our lives to teach us how to walk in the steps of the father Abraham, the father of our faith. But if we don't understand what this journey is, and we look at these tests and trials as something with, oh, look what the devil's done, instead of recognizing this is an opportunity to grow. It doesn't mean God brought it into your life. But it's an opportunity to grow. Every day is an opportunity to grow. And I have days like you do, or at least most of you do. I have days when I'm feeling discouraged, and, and then I get the Spirit of God challenges me. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't lay down. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Abraham passed the ultimate test. And out of that, a relationship, he had experienced a relationship with God it's beyond what most people experience, and there's nothing that says you and I can't walk in that kind of relationship. But we get lazy, and we allow other things into our life, into our thinking, into our schedule that, that rob us of the things that build faith into our lives. Proverbs chapter 4. I've been, I've been meditating on this every day. My son, attend to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not depart from your eyes. But keep them in the midst of your heart. For their life, 
to those who find them and health to all their flesh. And as I've meditated on it, meditated on it, suddenly it dawned on me, this is my father speaking to me, saying, son, attend to my words. I've never told you to attend to CNN. Not wrong to look at it, but don't attend to it. I've never told you to attend to TV. I've never told you to attend to these things. They don't, I'm not saying well, some, something's on it or wrong, but is it what's building your faith? Because the building of our faith in almost in most Christians is somewhere way down the list of our priorities. And usually we only do that when we get, as Pastor Sam used to say, their tail caught in the crack, when we get in trouble. And now we try to build our faith up, and it's much harder to do it in the middle of a storm than it is when things are peaceful. But there's so much at stake. The intimacy and relationship that you can have with God is only going to come as you develop your faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For in order to come to Him, to have an intimate relationship, in order to pray and get effective answers to your prayer, you must believe that He's really there listening to you and He's a rewarder. He'll answer you. He'll give you the answers. He'll give you what you ask for if you diligently seek Him. And that word diligently is really not in the Greek. The word seek means to to, to, to continue to go after, to not quit, to not give up. So I hope this has challenged you, has challenged me. We're going to bring this to an end tonight. The steps of the faith of Abraham. I want you to go to Romans chapter 4. We'll close with this. I didn't, it's not in the scriptures, but if you go back to that, that second verse I gave you, Romans 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 15. I didn't give them that verse, but it's Romans 4, verse 15. This tells us how Abraham applied it. It was not in my notes, but I'll read this to you. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence or in the sight of him who believed, even God, who, this is what he believed about God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things into existence which do not, which is though they did not exist. So the two things he believed about God is that God is able to raise the dead. We've talked about this before. And beyond that, the God who made the promise to him can call things into existence that never existed before. So the deadness of Sarah's womb was not a problem to God. The deadness of Abraham's body was not a problem to God because he can give life to the dead. Verse 18. Who, in ho- contrary to hope in hope, so against all natural hope, he still hoped and believed so that he, believed so that he might become... Notice the order in here. He believed so that he might become what God had promised. And that's the order of faith. God makes a promise, you believe it, and then it comes into existence. According to that which was spoken, so shall your descendants be. 
and not becoming weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. Stop there a second. Some of you may have translations that say he did consider his own body because there are some old translations that say that. It doesn't matter. What he's saying is that the condition of his body didn't move or change what he believed since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Now, now we've just finished studying his story and he wavered all over the place. We saw him waver when he offered his wife three times, I think it was, to the king. We've seen him waver when he laughed at God's promise. We see Sarah laughed at God's promise. We've seen them take things into our hands. But God's testimony about him is not the things he went through, but where he ended up. And when he came to that ultimate place of faith, God's testimony about him was he did not waver in unbelief. But he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Look at this, verse 21. Being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Go on to verse 22. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Remember what Paul's doing here. He's explaining to the Roman churches that we are saved we were given the righteousness of God in Christ through our faith in what God did for us through Christ. So he's using the example of God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And when Abraham believed that promise, just because God said so, God attributed his own righteousness to Abraham. In the same way, when we believe that God paid for our sins through the death on that cross of Christ. When our faith is in that and not what we do, God takes that faith, like he did Abraham's, and he attributes to us his righteousness because of our faith in Christ. So that's why this lesson about Abraham's faith is important, because our standing before God is because of the same faith we have, just because God gave Christ to you and said in his word he paid for your sins is believing that and receiving that with our heart that now allows God to count that to him us for righteousness and go on to the next verse verse 23 it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him verse 24 but also for us that it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So I don't know where you are in your journey of faith. I don't know where the steps that you've taken. But I really believe that God is encouraging us and challenging us through this simple series he dropped in my heart through praise and worship a a month or so ago on a Sunday morning to help us focus our lives, to be intentional, and to be purposeful. There's so many things that come at us today. I mean, it's always been hard. But today, with social media and so-called smartphones and all the, all the voices that are coming at us around us all the time, we get up in the morning and life just comes at us. And especially if you have a family and children or grandchildren, issues of life just come at us. 
And there, there many of them are designed to pull us away from what's truly important. And what the Spirit of God is saying to us is what is so critical is that we keep our eyes and focus on growing in faith every day because there's much at stake. Imagine if Abraham just didn't learn the lessons because it says it was out of his obedience that he was able to bring Christ into the world for you and me. Let's pray. Father, I come, we come to you tonight and only you can look into our hearts and know where we are and even more so than we can. Many times we think we're somewhere and we're not. Either we think we're further along in our walk of faith than we really are or we may think that we're behind where we really are and it's really not up to us to assess it. It's up to us to continue to walk this journey together with you and with each other. And so, Father, my prayer tonight is that your spirit would meet each one of us where we are, that you would help us to open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see where we are in our walk with you. Help us to prayerfully examine our lives and how we respond to situations of whether we respond in our flesh or are we responding by faith in your word. And help us to recognize that you're a father who loves us, that even where you may be correcting us or challenging us, as with Abraham, it's because you love us and you want to call us to another level. Your word tells us that you are at work in us. You are at work in each one of us, both to will and to do your good pleasure. But that's why Paul writes that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because you're the one that's at work in us. Help us in the decisions that we make tomorrow and the next day and this week and next week and this month and going forward as to the priorities of our life that we may see the priorities in terms of their eternal value and not as much in terms of their temporal value. And we thank you for the wisdom and discernment that's needed. Now, Father, my prayers are in